WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. We have an exciting episode today with Kaylee Ward, where we're discussing her research where she was serving the community in Japan. Hi, Kaylee. Thanks so much for joining us. May you please tell us more about yourself and your research? Thanks for having me today. So a little bit about myself. I'm a current a PhD student in sociology and environmental science policy at Michigan State University. And the work that I do with communities in Japan are those who have gone through a major disaster. In this case, I work with groups who suffered from the 2011 Great East Japan earthquake. A lot of people might not remember that, but it was 10 years ago, and it's when Japan suffered from a major tsunami that hit the northeastern coast of Japan. And the community that I work with was completely devastated um, by the tsunami. They had a tsunami of about 60 feet in height. And as you can imagine, that would be more than a four-story building. So there's really nowhere to go in that case. The community is only about 18,000 people that I work with. And after the disaster, there's only about 12,000 people now in the town. And so a lot of the work I do is helping them recover socially and economically and seeing ways in which we can do that from the bottom up by encouraging residents to participate in decision making and also to create community programs that help benefit residents. Yeah, I remember when I was growing up in high school that the earthquake was all over the news back then. It was really just a sad time for those people, unfortunately. You talked about how the tsunami devastated this town, but what is the relationship between an earthquake and a tsunami? Great question. Not all earthquakes will generate a tsunami. In most cases, you need a, a large earthquake, so a high magnitude level. So there's seven is pretty high. And in this case, this disaster was recorded at a nine. So this disaster in particular, you have an earthquake going on for more than a minute, and it's extreme shaking. And because the earthquake was only, at least for, you know, in the U.S., what we consider maybe couple miles offshore, there wasn't much time for people to evacuate. And because the earthquake was so powerful, it generated or had the ability to generate a large tsunami. So usually what you have is we have these tectonic plates that we, you know, different portions, different continents rest on. And those plates move over time, usually very, very slowly. So slowly you, you don't ever know. But sometimes those plates will catch on each other and pressure will build up and build up and build up. And eventually they'll slip past each other. And that movement between plates is what generates an earthquake. And sometimes that movement can cause plates to move up or down. That's when plates move underneath or over top each other. And that movement of plates over top each other or underneath each other is what actually generates the tsunami. Wow, I feel really bad for these people. A magnitude 9 is honestly like unthinkable for me. Coming from Florida and now living in Michigan, I've never experienced an earthquake. Now, you said that you created community programs for the people that were affected by this. There are so many different things that you could create. For example, you can help people who were affected like health-wise, mentally, and even provide resources. What did you do particularly for the community? Yeah, it's a great question. So I started working with this community in 2014 after going to Japan for study, actually. And I got involved with a nonprofit there who was working with residents who were in temporary housing. As a result of the disaster, almost 10,000 residents were immediately homeless. So as you might imagine, that's a large movement of people into temporary shelters or temporary homes. And one of the effects of the disaster was essentially this diaspora of people, people leaving the community um, because they didn't have homes anymore or because they couldn't afford to rebuild or it was just too difficult to stay in the community due to the trauma. 
And so one of the things the nonprofit does is create community programs specifically centered on creating opportunities for children and families to interact with others. So really a lot of our programs are unification efforts where we have programs in different prefectures or states. And at those events, we invite children and families who were originally from the community to return back and to attend these and essentially share in different programs that children participate in and also that parents can participate in. Usually when we're looking at recovery post-disaster, there's a lot of focus on, you know, rebuilding. Where are we going to put the houses? Where is the hospital going to go? All this physical infrastructure stuff that's also very important. But oftentimes, you know, people's well-being or their connection to their community isn't really focused on as much as a important measure of recovery. And so what I and the nonprofit did after 2014 and until now is to create programs where people can actually mingle together share stories with each other, um, and sort of have that feeling of community again. And that's really important. We're talking about communities that are quickly disappearing. So the community I work with uh, is actually a rural community. And as you might guess, having a disaster happen can affect the community quite drastically. And so the people I work with already had issues with not having enough jobs and actually not having enough new people coming into the community. So the population was already shrinking. And so by focusing on creating a warm and welcoming community. We hope that we get people to stay in the community and new people to come into the community to help sustain the town over time. This is why I'm really glad that we have this show. So that way we can highlight the fact that there are these programs that are out there to try and help support these communities that have been devastated by the tsunami. You said that you had picked a rural town. What was this town and how far is it from Japan's coastline? How seriously was it impacted by the tsunami? Yeah, so the community that I work with is actually located right along the coast. Um, It's called Minami Sanriku in Miyagi Prefecture. And for international organizations that we work with and also other people in Japan, we usually just refer to the community as MSR. But Minami Sanriku is actually sort of crescent-shaped, so it has this very deep bay that comes into the community that is actually great for aquaculture and other forms of, of fishing. Unfortunately, though, that bay created a tsunami that was quite tall. So what ends up happening is the bay emptied out, and then, of course, the water comes rushing back in. So because of the geography of the community, there's not much of you know flat plains for the water to rush into. And so you go immediately from flat coastal plains into foothills and then immediately into mountains. And so the water has nowhere else to go but up in that case. So as a result of that, regardless of where you were in the community, pretty much any flat, low-lying area was completely inundated with water. So as a result of that, there you can just literally step off on the coast and you're at the ocean. So because of that, there is no sort of break between the landfall of the tsunami and where people were living. Because of the flat plains, a lot of people built their houses there just historically. And so as a result of that, that's why we saw lo- such a large loss of not only life, but also homes. So in this community in particular, 63% of all homes were destroyed in the tsunami, which is about 3,400 houses in total. Um, That also meant that the business districts that were also located in low-lying areas were completely decimated. So as a result of that, because of its sort of place on the coast and it not being an inland community, it didn't really have any protection from the tsunami. It's really hard to put into words how horrified I feel about this and how sad I feel whenever I think about all the people that were affected by this. And you said that you had community partners. I would imagine that you had a lot of organizations that you worked with. How did you find them? And can you give me an idea about these partners? Like, what did they do? 
Yeah, so one of the main partners I work with is called Place to Grow. But actually, immediately after the disaster, um, they had a different name. Their name was OGA for Aid. And that came from a sort of English learning community in Almorty Prefecture, which is much, much north of where I was located. And so that school actually created a disaster relief organization, which became OGA for Aid. So OGA for Aid came into the community three days after the disaster. So literally ground zero, there is debris everywhere. There is no clear roads. There is no supply lines. There is just nothing. And a lot of times people in the community compare it to how they would imagine the firebombing of Japan to look like after, during World War II. They're just being absolutely this idea of like nothingness, essentially. And so what they did is they came in, they distributed water, food, assistance. They worked with um, the U.S. Navy. They also worked with Japan's military, uh, their self-defense forces. And over time, they transitioned from a disaster relief aid to more along the lines of like community development or educational development or programs to support resident well-being. So in 2017, that organization transi transitioned into Place to Grow. Throughout that entire time, or since 2014, I've worked with both OGA for Aid and Place to Grow. Other organizations that I work with are originally from the community. So for example, we have Green Farmers Miyagi, which is a farmer's cooperative that's focused on revitalizing farming in the region. One of the major effects of having saltwater come into a rural community is that rural communities usually have rice fields in these lower area, low-lying areas, and rice does not deal well with saltwater intrusion. And so to deal with both remediation efforts of farmland, but also with dealing with just the loss of land, loss of farmers, and industry essentially, Green Farmers Miyagi focuses on remediating land through actually growing onions. Onions do a really great job of pulling salt out of the soil. And so through doing that, they've actually been able to remediate the rice fields to go back to rice cultivation as a result of this now 10 years later. Another group that's been really pivotal in the work that I do is Minami Sandiku Junior Academy, which is sort of an English language learning group that is run by the previous high school principal that we do a lot of our education programs out of. And so those three groups sort of highlight both, you know, community aspects of, of building community, building social recovery, and then also building economic recovery, and then also providing opportunities for children as well. So just some of the partners, I have, you know, about seven or eight in the community. There's so many of them at this, but I think the real sort of shining light out of doing all this work is we don't really focus on, you know, the trauma of the disaster or how horrific it was because we want to create a bright future for residents. And a lot of residents, while we do memorialize the disaster, they also want to do right by people in the community by making sure the community grows and remains strong into the future. I guess I didn't realize how many groups there were that were involved with the helping of the recovery from this disaster. I'm curious about the effectiveness, though. How did you evaluate how effective these groups were at supporting these displaced people to help them recover from this disaster? Yeah, so a lot of the organizations I worked with didn't have sort of evaluative measures um, in the work that they did. They were, you know, a true nonprofit or a true non-government organization just doing work in the community. And so my relationship with them really was born out of not only my want to assist the community, but also helping the organizations sort of handle, you know, how do we help people? Are we doing the right things? Are we doing things that are useful to people or that people find actually helpful in their lives? And so we would, or what I would do for organizations, I would go out into the community and interview residents, or we would do surveys to evaluate uh, their needs. 
And so over time in the community, I've done roughly 200 interviews of residents. And this past year, we did um, surveys about people's social networks. So like their, their family, their friends, their colleagues, business connections, connections they have with different organizations and things like that. And in total, we've sort of surveyed about just under 3,000 different relationships in the community. And given that there's only about a little over 12,000 people in the community, we've actually surveyed quite a large portion of the town. And through doing that, we've been able to notice specific things. So for example, for Place to Grow, I give them reports every year on sort of what our programs are doing, not only just like funding, but also how many people has it affected, what was the feedback from those people. But also we can look at things like who are the programs not reaching? So who has been isolated? And so doing surveys and doing evaluations helps to sort of pinpoint that. So over the past year, we've noticed that certain districts in the community are very isolated. They haven't received a lot of development funding or a lot of development period post-disaster. And so what I do is I just essentially give the organization a recommendation of, hey, maybe we should consider doing work in this community next year, or maybe we can create a new program with the local schools there and see how that goes. So my job is not to tell the organizations what to do. It's really a partnership. And for a lot of these organizations, I'm also staff within them. And it's all volunteer work. None of us are, are paid for this. We do it because we see value in supporting the well-being of residents in the community. Whenever you were conducting these surveys, what language did you conduct them in? Was it English or Japanese? And do you know Japanese or did you need an interpreter whenever you were going around to these different villages? Yeah, so the joke we make in the organization is that pretty much all of our volunteers come from within Japan. If we do have international volunteers, they do need to speak the language. So I do speak Japanese and all of the interviews and surveys and materials that we use are always in Japanese. As a rural community, sort of like the Western idea about Japan is like this very like urban metropolis and there's technology everywhere and everything's convenient, which is true to some extent, like the transportation system in Japan is. But in Minami Sanriku, they're very far removed um, from urban centers. And because of that, we actually don't have a train line. Uh, we have a bus line. And also many people in the community don't travel to urban centers and don't live in urban centers. They've lived in this rural community and their family has lived in this rural community for hundreds of years. And so most locals don't speak any English. And so in order to do work in this community, you do have to know um, Japanese. And in some cases, you also have to know the local dialect, which can be somewhat difficult when speaking to like a 90-year-old and trying to understand what they're telling you. So sometimes what we would do after doing interviews or during surveys, we would have local residents also evaluate our notes and also evaluate other things to make sure that the important key aspects of interviews and the findings we were collecting from our surveys were actually representative of what residents thought. There can be problems when you do research where, especially if the researcher is removed from the cultural context, you know, originally I'm from the US and I'm going to Japan. And even though I've been working in Japan for seven years, there's going to be many things that I'm not maybe aware of or critical of when I do evaluations or coding interviews and things like that. So having residents and other people from the different organizations review interviews and codes and notes and things like that help ensure that um, what we're putting forth or what we're actually saying our findings are actually true of how residents feel. I didn't know you knew how to speak Japanese. That's a really cool skill to have. Languages is one of the most important things a person can do to help develop their brain, that's for sure. And it helps when it comes to being able to interact with communities all across the world. Since you arrived in Japan to do this work in 2014, how have you seen the community evolve as a result of the community programs? 
Yeah, so in 2014, a lot of the efforts were still around rebuilding and also getting residents settled and things like that. And so during that time, a lot of the programs were just focused on supporting residents and helping to reduce isolation and other mental health issues. Since 2016, though, because most residents were then moved into some form of public housing or more permanent housing, the organization wanted to transition. And so we started doing evaluations in 2016 to see how the organization could pivot from being a disaster relief organization into more of a community development oriented organization. And so over time, what I've seen is that relief efforts, you know, you just give people supplies, you help them access resources, things like that. You're not necessarily trying to develop skills or help them create solutions or or conduct problem solving or things like that. So since 2016, we've become much more involved in the community as a result of the transition. And I would say one of the major changes is that originally when we were working in the community, we were just working in Minami Sanriku. We limited ourselves just to that area. But of course, the disaster affected the whole northeastern coast. So over time, not only have the programs expanded in sort of what do we cover, what do we support, but we also expanded geographically. So now we support other communities that are close to Minami Sanriku. So we support a town just north of us in Kesanuma. We also support communities in Fukushima, which some people might remember is where they had the the nuclear disaster. So we support communities there now as well. And we also have onboarded a lot of international schools as part of our cross-cultural programs. And so as a result of that, we are now located across three prefectures. We do our our winter programming of events, and we have supported more than 10,000 children over the past couple years through our programs and also families. And we also provide cross-cultural opportunities, which I mentioned earlier, which are extremely important because a lot of these towns don't have a great educational development, not only because they're small, but because the number of children that they have in the community tends to be quite small. So for example, in Minami Sandiku, there's only about a thousand children for, you know, the 11,000 young adults, adults and seniors in the community. And so by having cross-cultural exchanges where we have international schools visit the community and they have events for a couple of days, it's a great way to sort of benefit not only their learning and engagement, but also help them create new ties outside the community as well. So I would say there was a a big shift not only from what we do within the community, but now what we do outside the community and who we incorporate into our activities and events. That's incredible that you've been able to expand the reach of your work to all of those other prefectures. And you had mentioned one particular event that caught my interest because as a nuclear physicist, I often focus a lot on the Fukushima nuclear disaster that took place following the tsunami. One issue in particular that I noticed that's different from the work that you're doing compared to what the residents are dealing with that lived around Fukushima is that they're not able to move back to their homes the land that's surrounding the Fukushima plant is going to be contaminated for years and years due to the fact that you have these radionuclides that have been absorbed into a lot of the local agriculture as well as forestry in the area. Because of these constraints that are placed on the people that lived around there, how have the strategies changed when it came to helping and supporting the people that were permanently displaced from the area around Fukushima? Yeah, so one of our programs actually connects to the town of Koryama, and they have a lot of people who were permanently displaced. And one of the things that became really important was, you know, maintaining local culture, maintaining local ties. And so they've done a couple of things. They have a radio broadcast program similar to what you all do, where it's run by the local high school and children get to share stories and things like that. And it's a nice thing that displaced people can participate in. The other thing is, 
because of the physical displacement and how visible it is, you know, there's barricades, there's, you know, there's caution tape everywhere. You literally can't go into the irradiated zone without having, you know, special protective gear on. The other thing that gets caught up in that, though, is that residents who have been displaced also seem to never escape the disaster. So one of the things that's happened as a result of the nuclear fallout is people always have meters with them or in their house to test so sort of the radioactivity around them. And so even though they've moved out of the area, it's like the disaster follows them as a result of it. And so working with Kordiyama, we really are trying to help, you know, not only reconcile with that sort of trauma, which is not something that gets fixed in 10 years, but also how do they move forward with that? So by having the radio program, but, but also by having activities for children and adults to participate in events that they would have originally had in their old community. So having the same festivals or having similar shops and stores, things like that, are also really important. I think the other thing that happens, though, is there's also this invisible displacement of people. So outside of Fukushima, there were other areas that were contaminated by the radiation. And in those communities as well, they've been affected where they're afraid to do farming or they're afraid to do fishing because of the stigma of working in those areas. After the disaster, many Japanese people would not purchase any food um, from the Tohoku region, which is the northern region of Japan. Similarly, communities that are located along the coast, even though they've done rebuilding, many people can't rebuild their homes along the coast because the government has instituted policies that sort of limit or prohibit people rebuilding in an area where essentially like a 10-foot or 12-foot tsunami could be possible in the future. So in general, not just in Fukushima, but along the entire coastline, People who were originally living in coastal dwellings, living with the ocean essentially, have been forced inland as a result. So we see across the entire region a real change, not only in lifestyle, but also in how they maintain um, their culture as well. I'm really glad that you were able to expand this to other communities and that you're impacting thousands of people who've been affected by many different disasters. Now looking to the future, you will be graduating eventually. What are you planning on doing after? Would you continue working with these people and these community partners that you spent years developing these relationships with? Yeah, so I'm hoping in the future to continue working with them. Um, Right now, because of the pandemic, a lot of the work has been moved to remote operations. But because I've worked with the community for seven years now, it's not a tie that I want to sort of give up or move on especially because a lot of these communities after the disaster, we had, you know, a great outpouring of support from, you know, the entire world, but also from within Japan. And around 2014 is when a lot of those volunteer efforts stopped. However, residents, you know, created friendships with those volunteers and great connections with them that have slowly died off. And so I don't want to, you know, close off those friendships because to me, working in the community is not just, you know, it's not just research. It's not just doing community engagement. It's also something that I'm I'm very much personally invested in. So in the future, what I hope to do is either do a research assistantship in Japan or do some sort of nonprofit work within the country so I can continue my, my efforts there. I got to tell you, this is some pretty incredible work that you're doing. And it's really great that there's somebody like you to go out there engage with these communities, and help make sure that they're feeling supported, especially after difficult times like this. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk to us about your research. Good luck with your future projects. Thank you so much for having me. I'm always happy to share about what's going on in Japan because, you know, it's been 10 years. So I think a lot of uh, the collective memory, at least internationally, about this disaster is slowly disappearing. And thank you so much for the opportunity to share about the experiences of people in this community and what we're doing in the future.
Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.